0: Well, perhaps you've heard this story. This story about this man who grew up in a godly home. His dad had started a very successful business. He went to the best schools, lived in the finest neighborhood, graduated from a prestigious college, and started working in the family business. Married his college sweetheart, had three great kids, was a community leader and a church leader, was over the top generous and kind. He eventually took over the family business, making it an even greater success. Had the best house on the best street. Had the newest cars. The greatest family vacations. The ultimate life of ease and accomplishment with success, building upon success. Perhaps you've heard the story of this man. Well, me neither. I made it up. Because even if all of that that I made up was true for someone, it would only be partially true. You see, while some might earn earthly success, everyone receives heartache. Everyone knows life's hard times. Everyone is acquainted with disappointment. It's universal. It doesn't matter if your bank account is overflowing. Or you're living paycheck to paycheck. It doesn't matter if you have uh, multiple homes or you can barely afford rent. In everyone's life, rain will fall. In everyone's life, that rain is sometimes a hurricane, wrecking havoc, facing discouragement and ridicule and resistance and fear are universal. It's at the heart of who we are as humans. We all have so many different life stories. We all have so many different life events in history. But we all share these universal realities of facing hard times. We all share the common experience of discouragement, of loss of hope, of ridicule, of when someone thinks they know how you should be living your life. Of resistance from friction and relationships with family and friends and at work. And of fear, fear of Stepping forward, fear of failure, fear of confrontation, fear of the unknown, and on and on and on. So, know this today. No matter what the story of earthly success of any of those sitting around you, the one reality that is common to all of us is life, discouragement. The one reality that bonds us together is our brokenness. No one is immune life's hard times. No one. We are all real people here this morning with real lives. And so is the next situation the Jews are facing in rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. So please open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. And follow along as I read. It says, Now when San Balad heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes. What are they building? If a fox goes up against it, it will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Astrodites heard that the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space uh, behind the wall, an open places I stationed the people by their clans and with their swords, their spears and their bows, and I looked and rose and said to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of the servants worked on construction. and Half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. The leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders held his sword strapped by his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sounds of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at their work and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me. None of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Father, we thank you for this passage today written some 2,500 years ago. It's a powerful story of the challenges that the people of God faced as they were doing your work. The hardships, the discouragement, it's real. Lord, in our life we face the same things. Lord, teach us today from your word. Holy Spirit, we pray you would use this very word that you have inspired and you would change us and challenge us. You would comfort us and inspire us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at the end of chapter 2, Nehemiah stirs up the people for the rebuilding of the wall. If you remember, they all responded in verse 18, and they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. Even before they had started to rebuild, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem had jeered at them, mocking them. But there was no way that they could do it. But with their focus on God, they dismissed the taunt. And in chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah responds by saying, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we as servants will arise and build. And that's exactly what they did. Chapter 3 is all about the organizing and the rebuilding of the wall. It was a huge project, daunting, immense, you know, great organization. But the people, all the people were unified and focused on the glory of God, willing to serve and sacrifice. But now the, as the project has begun in earnest, so has the opposition begun in earnest. We see in chapter 4, verses 1-3, through the renewed attack ridiculing the Jews. They literally called them names and made jokes about them. We see in verse 1 there, that sin Ballad, upon hearing the news that the Jews had begun building the wall was angry and greatly enraged. His first attempt to stop them didn't work. A strong and fortified Jerusalem would weaken his power over the land. But he couldn't just do some outright attack. Uh, protecting his own power and pretending to do it in the name of the king because, remember, the king had given Nehemiah permission to rebuild the walls. He desperately wanted the walls to not be rebuilt. He was greatly enraged about the whole process, but he had to do it in a way that at the same time did not defy the king. So his main mode of attack was psychological warfare. One commentator wrote, Sanballat knew that a restored Jerusalem would lessen his influence in the area. Thus, he was greatly angered and intent on discouraging Nehemiah's project, even though he knew it had the approval of the Persian court. Anger will often be the world's response to God's work because it challenges their worldviews and values. Much of the opposition to the project consisted of psychological warfare. The first opposition came in the form of ridicule, which is often sufficient to stifle the spirit and the work of anyone. You see, the source of ridicule is anger. Often the source of ridicule that we endure in life comes from anger. It's often the source when we ridicule someone else. Behind the forked tongue of ridicule and mockery is often an angry heart. If that's one of the challenges you have in your life, controlling your tongue and mocking or ridiculing others, don't just focus on the words, but focus on changing your heart. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So go to Jesus and ask him to help him change your heart and to deal with the underlying Issues of anger and insecurity. As that commentator said, anger is often the world's response to God's work. You see, if God's people do God's work in God's way, we can be sure to face opposition. If God's people do God's work in God's way, we will face opposition. And the first attack, even on us, is usually in the form of ridicule and mocking. Sam Ballad, in the presence of his kindred and of his army, heckled and made fun of the Jews. He called the Jews feeble. And they were feeble. That's honest. They were militarily weak. They would be no match for the combined efforts of the forces rallied against them. He wanted them to look at their feebleness, to look at their weakness, and then to look at his military strength. This word feeble also means withered. Sanballat is saying that they're like a cut flower. There's no strength to endure. He wanted them to look at how weak they were and then in fear stop rebuilding the wall. Then he questioned their ability in doing the project by themselves. Will they restore it for themselves? Hoping to make them feel like the project was too hard for them. How could a remnant of feeble Jews hope to build a wall strong enough to protect the city? You can just imagine the army laughing as Stan Ballard jeered. Then he questioned that, that their God would really help them. Will they sacrifice? He ridiculed their trust in God. Did they think that prayer and sacrifice could make the wall grow? Is it going to be, take more than prayer and worship to rebuild the city, he would have laughed. Then he made fun of them saying, will they finish up in a day? Oh, the project's too big. It's too difficult for you. It's too demanding. You can't do it. Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish? Burned ones at that? He ridiculed them for saying, you can't build a wall with 140-year-old broken down bricks. Then Tobiah chimes in his, his sneering joke, you know, saying that even if a fox jumps up against it, their stone wall is going to fall down the first opposition they faced was, it's too hard. It's going to take too long. You're too weak. You can't do this. It's too much for you to handle. Just give up and don't try. Anybody ever hear words like that? In your life? Well, next they faced this direct Resistance. The ridicule didn't work. They continued building the walls. Verse 6 says they had now joined the wall up to half its height. The people stayed focused on God and what God could do through them. They had a mind to work. Even in the midst of the jeers and the taunts, they stayed unified and focused and working hard. But now the opposition tramped up to a high level of alert. What was just words are now plans for attack. Word had reached Jerusalem that the coalition of forces against them had grown. It's not just Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. But now the Ashtodites have joined the forces. Jerusalem is now literally surrounded with forces that want to take them down. A common enemy, a common cause, have brought these four different groups together to crush those working on the walls of Jerusalem. To the north was Sanballat and the Samaritans. To the east was Tobiah and the Ammonites. To the south was Geshem and the Arabs. To the west, the ashdodites A strong, independent Jewish people were a threat to them. And the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem had to be stopped. The plot was probably some kind of guerrilla warfare tactic. Verse 9 says that they wanted to throw them into confusion. Verse 11 mentions the threats that they wanted to kill the workers at the walls. Their plot against Jerusalem was Real. The threat was genuine and eminent, ridiculed, and now with a military plot against them. What happens to their attitude? Verse 10 says that they gave in to discouragement. Look at those verses again with me, verse 10 through twelve. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we're not able to rebuild the walls. Listen to the discouragement. And our enemies, they've said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them. Kill us and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived by kept coming from all directions and said to them ten times, you must return to us. Such honest, transparent words. If you think about it, You know, their response or discouragement is understandable. Along with the taunts and the threats. They are tired. They're very tired. They've been working really hard. And yet the task is still so overwhelming. They've shifted their eyes. Did you catch that? No. They've shifted their eyes so all they can see is too much rubble. And then they have to be thinking to themselves, am I ready to die for a wall? Is it Really that important? And then the friends and the relatives of the out-of-towners that have come to help keep coming up to them and keep telling them to leave over and over again. They're telling them, get out of here. Leave. It's not safe. Go home. What are you thinking? People started listening to the hurtful words of the enemy and the fatigue of the work, and they started believing those words, and they said, it's just too much. Too much rubble. We can't do this by ourselves. We're too weak. We can't. It wasn't the truth. That was not true. But now their strength and their will is fading. See, discouragement is real. It's real for all of us. We all face times of encouragement. Discouragement. We all face the blues. We all at times become Eeyores. Yeah, and all we can see are the rubble in life. Oftentimes, our discouragement comes just like theirs did. We start listening to the negative and hurtful voices in our lives. We don't just hear them, we let their thoughts linger in our thoughts, and then we internalize them. Sometimes we all have to admit, sometimes those hurtful words actually come. From ourselves. Sometimes we are the ones telling ourselves. We can't do it. We're too weak. The problem's too big. I should just give up. The external cutting words have become an internal voice track in our own minds. Maybe it's only me. But most often, in my greatest moments of discouragement, the greatest enemy is me. Discouragement can get us so twisted around and so focused on the hardships of our lives. And then the cousin of discouragement shows up, fear. And fear never shows up alone. It always brings along its closest friends, worry and anxiety. You see, in the first phrase of Nehemiah's response to the people in verse 14, he said, Do not be afraid. Fear not. The ridicule and the applauding have led to discouragement and now fear while discouragement slows us down, fear shuts us down. Discouragement takes us down. Fear paralyzes us. Discouragement gets us erroneously focused on what we cannot do. Fear gets us erroneously focused on what God cannot do. Our fears usually manifest themselves in worry and anxiety. I can't do this, and God doesn't care. I'm too weak, and God's nowhere to be found. I have to love the honesty of the Bible. As it lays open these people's lives, it lays open our lives. As we see their pain and struggle, we see our pain and struggle. ridicule, discouragement, fear have gripped their hearts, and the work has come to a standstill. When ridicule and discouragement and fear grip our hearts, we too can just stop our lives. So what can we learn from Nehemiah chapter 4 about how they dealt with their discouragement and fear? What can we learn that can help us to put our lives back into gear, to move us out past the negative talk in our heads and to break the bonds of fear in our lives? The first is to pray, to talk to God. Nehemiah was a praying man. Twice in chapter uh, two, uh, 4 here, uh, Nehemiah prays. In verses 4 and 5, he prays after hearing the report of the ridicule, the Taunting of St. and Tobiah. In verse 9, after hearing the report of the impending attack from the joint forces against them, he prays. In verse 14, after telling them not to be afraid, he says, Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. See, prayer fundamentally changes our focus. It fundamentally changes our focus from us and on to God. If you look at all the great examples of men and women in the Bible, when they're in the midst of life's hard times, when discouragement and fear have invaded their lives. They prayed. Abraham and Elijah, Hannah, David, Jeremiah, Mary, Paul, James, even Jesus. In those darkest moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. See, some of the greatest solace in life, some of the greatest comfort in life can only be attained through prayer. Talking to God. Being real and honest with God. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, prayer is not some kind of 800 number. It's not dial a prayer. Prayer is not repeating religious words. Prayer is God's design to help us. Prayer is a conversation where feelings and emotions are shared. It is in the conversation of prayer where pain meets hope. Where loss finds purpose. Where brokenness finds comfort. Where discouragement finds encouragement. Where fear is overcome by faith. We find the hope and the purpose, the comfort, the encouragement, and the faith that we want in life, that we need in life. The first step is to pray. To deal with our hurts in conversation with God. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The next thing we see in Nehemiah's leading of his people to do is to keep on going. After the ridicule of verses 1 through 3 and Nehemiah's prayer, verses 4 through 5, we see the people continue to work, to be hard at work, joining the wall together to half its heart heights. After the the plot is revealed of the coming attack against Jerusalem in verses 7 and 8, we see the people prayed and they set a guard of protection against them day and night. We see in verse 15, after the enemies of the Jews had learned that they knew about the plot to attack, that God had frustrated their plan, all the people returned to the wall, each to his own work. See, one of the most common responses to discouragement is to disappear. To disappear, we pull back. We stop. There are times in our lives when the hardest thing to do is to get out of bed in the morning. The discouragement, the fear, the heartache, the loss, the hard time is so real, so fatiguing, so oppressive, That just getting out of bed and getting ready for the day is exhausting. So first of all, hear this. Listen closely to these words right now. Sometimes our minds, our bodies, and our spirits just need those times. That's okay. God can use those times to start to bring the hope and the healing we need in life. But even then, the the moment will come when our Lord will challenge us and move us on to keep going. See, to deal with life's hard times, we need to pray and we need to keep going. Do you know you can only turn a vehicle that's moving? If in your life you need to turn, you need to be moving dealing with the hard times in our lives, dealing with ridicule, discouragement, and fear means we need to pray and we need to keep on going. Next we see, don't listen. See, at the first part of chapter 4, when the enemies were jeering at them and ridiculing them, they heard it all, but they didn't listen. Instead, in verse 6, they faithfully and powerfully just kept building the wall. See, not listening to false messages in the world around us is an important remedy for discouragement. One of the realities of our age is information overload. TV and radio, Internet. Now our phones are bugging us. Non-stop information, much of which is frivolous and useless. And so often the information is manipulated or skewed, only presenting part of the story, only representing one aspect of a much deeper, much more complicated reality. You know there's a term for it? It's called Facebook envy. There's an article in the Huffington Post that said witnessing friends' vacations and love lives and work success on Facebook can cause envy and trigger feelings of misery and loneliness, according to German researchers. A study conducted jointly by two German universities found rampant envy on Facebook the world's largest social network that now has over one billion users and has produced an unprecedented platform for social comparison. The researchers found that one in three people felt worse after viewing the site and were more dissatisfied with their lives, while people who browsed without contributing were affected the most. We were surprised by how many people have a negative experience from Facebook with envy, leaving them feeling lonely and frustrated and angry, said researcher Hannah Krasnova. Folks, this is important. We have to remember something. It's not real. It's not real. People are falling prey to Facebook envy, comparing themselves to other, and it's not even real. It's fake. It's as fake as a $3 bill. There's no TV show that's showing all sides of reality. They might call it reality TV. It's not real. There's no Facebook post that shows the true sides of reality. They're always trying to show themselves in the greatest light, in the most positive light, just like that made-up story I had at the beginning of the sermon. No one's life is all that. No one's life is just... Positive and great and rainbows and bunnies. You know, we've all heard that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. We've all heard that saying. You know, the proverbial saying, which means that, that the things that other people have, uh, of their life situations, they always look better than your own. Even when it's not really true. You know why the, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence? Because it's fake grass. It's not real. It's not. It's been fertilized to make it look like it's actually great. But in reality, it is no better at all. And most often, it's actually far worse. Folks, don't listen to it. It's not true. Your life will not be better by leaving what you know God wants you to do to pursue what the world around you says is going to make you happy. And it's not going to make you happy. It doesn't work that way. It won't work. Not listening to the lies of this world may be one of the best ways to stave off discouragement even before it happens. We have to be careful what counsel we keep. It's the Psalm 1-1 principle. It's important to me. I learned this very young, As a Christian, Psalm one Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Sometimes the greatest blessings we have in life are from the things that we don't do. Blessed is the man who does not. Some of the greatest blessings I have ever had in my life have come from the very things that I never did. Don't listen to the lies of our culture. It will not bring happiness. It will instead feed the very discouragement that you're trying to deal with. Well, lastly, we come to a remedy to overcoming our discouragement and fears to fight. Verse 14. Is that an awesome verse or what? That's a stirring, motivational, powerful verse in the Bible. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the officials, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight. Fight for your brothers, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, your families. Fight for your homes. Fight. This life that we live is a battle. You have to fight. We have to fight for godliness. It doesn't just happen. You have to battle for spiritual growth. It doesn't just happen. You have to train for obedience. It doesn't just happen. You have to struggle for holiness. It's not magic. It doesn't just happen. You have to attack our sin. It's not going to go away on its own. We have to wrestle against our selfishness. It's just not going to go away. We have to acknowledge as well as we battle in our lives that there is a spiritual battle that mirrors this battle that we have. Ephesians 610 to 12 tell us that so strongly. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you can stand up against the schemes of the devil of this world. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And there's another very important point to mention. Nehemiah mentions it in chapter 20, of verse of um, I mean chapter 4, verse 20. He says, "Our God will fight for us. Our God will see. Our fight is never alone. Our God is always there, always fighting for us, always fighting with us. Which means." Because God is like the biggest, strongest, most awesomest, powerfulest thing ever. If God is fighting for you, what does that mean? It means you win. But we've got to fight. So are you fighting? See, Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is only played on the field. Spiritual growth doesn't come through marinating in God. You know, just sitting there and soaking it in until eventually you become more Christ-like. It doesn't work that way. It's so important. True spiritual growth only happens if you go for it, if you fight for it, if you forsake what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, pressing on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ in our lives. By being a mature Christian means seeking first the kingdom of God. Being on, a, an on fire disciple for Jesus means that we do what Jesus said when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Oh, beloved, when it comes to dealing with the difficulties that life throws at us, we have to fight. Isaac Watts in that great hymn asked these questions Am I a soldier of the cross? a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own His cause or blush to speak His name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? There are, no, are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this foul world a friend of grace to help me on to God? See, Paul challenges Timothy in 1 Timothy six fifteen 6.12 to fight the good fight of the faith. Are you? Are you fighting the good fight of the faith? I love this scene. I want to share this with you. Near the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, at a moment when all could be lost, Aragon is on his horse to the assembled army that's there. And he says to them, Hold your ground, hold your ground, sons of Gandor and Rohan, my brothers. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take my heart. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break our bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. This day We fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand. So folks, I say to you this day, hold your ground. I see in your eyes the same fear that would grip the very heart of me. But do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your family. A day may come when our courage fails, but it is not today. Today, we are going to fight. This is our day, and our God will fight for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray, I pray so much for this feeble man, Brian Etheridge, that he would fight. I pray so much for this church, for each one of us in here, that we would fight. Lord, life is hard. It is full of downtimes and discouragement, difficulties. But Lord, we know that you are our God and you will fight for us. And if we but stand in your strength and in your power, even when we can hardly move, if we can stand in your power and your strength, you will win the day. And so we pledge to fight today. In Jesus' name, amen.